Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a show that is once again today about the Chilean Revolution. Um, here's part two of my interview with Nicholas Scott. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I guess the next thing we should look at is like how how this yeah, and what goes in this next, opening right? phase. Yeah, and it's yeah, exactly well. You know, the essentially by the end of Allende's first year, things are looking very promising. So a few victories, more than a few victories, but a few key victories take place in, in his first year in office in 1971. He submits his plan for the nationalization of the nation's mineral wealth, which is voted unanimously in Congress, uh, which speaks to the level of broad support for Chile having its own national sovereignty over its own resources, right? And this also then connects with sort of the theme that we've been developing this whole time, which is the sort of trends and regional and global uh, similarities between Chile and elsewhere, right? A lot of the third world movement, a lot of countries in the so-called third world at that time are looking to nationalization as the way to extricate themselves from what they viewed as being in a relationship of dependency to circuits of global capitalism, right? You have this whole idea of dependency theory that comes out of Latin America in specific. Um, and 
the solution then is seen to be able to control one's own natural resources uh, and, and use that wealth to develop its own national industry, right? This would overcome those sort of bottlenecks in the import substitution model, um, as well as allowing for a more redistributive um, structure of wealth and or land within the individual countries themselves. So he gets his mineral wealth um, nationalization passed. Uh, the Popular Unity Coalition also wins a series of off-year or by-elections at the local level um, and wins them so successfully that they will eschew an uh, alliance with the Christian Democrats, who are not part of the coalition, the Popular Unity Coalition, but they are also at this time not part of the opposition, which is largely controlled by the Nationalist Party. They're sort of in, somewhere in the middle but they're also in a point in the middle in which they control a large share of the Congress as well as the courts themselves. So they will not, so the Popular Unity Coalition is sort of buoyed by the, what it sees as the success at the ballot box and it sees its success as getting its plans passed. Uh, and so they will issue an alliance with the Christian Democrats. And then the sort of other main thing that takes place in 1971 is that Allende is able to affect using uh, macroeconomic policies that were functionally Keynesianism, right? Um, and his economic minister, Pedro Vuskovic, um, will essentially allow for a redistribution of wealth uh, in which uh, workers receive sort of um, what they could, what we can consider bonuses, right? But sort of automatic increases um, that were affected from the top down in wages across. Uh, and the historian Peter Wynn, uh, who published the sort of landmark study um, that really dominated the field of the history and historiography of the popular unity years, he published a book called Weavers of Revolution that looks at the Yarrow textile mill, which was the first mill that Allende nationalizes um, in 1971. And what Wynn found during his research is that, you know, Allende's policies in 1971 allowed a majority of Chileans to purchase bedsheets for the first time in many of their lives. Bedsheets were not something that the majority of Chileans used, despite the fact that a majority of Chileans worked in the textile industry, right? The textile industry was one of the most developed industries in Chile at this moment. And so all of these things sort of come together. And by the end of 1971, signs are looking good. However, by the time sort of 1972 dawns, and as we're getting into 1972, cracks are beginning to appear. There's another series of by-elections in which the Popular Unity Coalition does not win, the Christian Democrats win. Uh, the election for the rector of the University of Chile is a shock defeat uh, for the Popular Unity Coalition, the Christian Democrat wins that. Um, as well as in 1972, there is, for the first time in the nation's history, the um, Central Workers Federation of Labor, the CUT, has for the first time its own um, open elections for its leadership. It was the first time the rank and file could elect the leadership of the National Labor Confederation. And the communists win the largest majority, and the socialists come in second. Just below the socialists, and at the percentage level, it was functionally the same, were the Christian Democrats. So much so that basically a quarter, the, the Popular Unity Coalition sees that a quarter of the working class of Chile identifies as a Christian Democrat. Meanwhile, economically, things are beginning to stall out. Uh, inflation is beginning to creep back up. Um, 
production is not necessarily at the levels that um, the government would want it to be at, right? So the idea of winning the battle of production begins becomes the sort of watchword or rallying cry in 1972. Uh, and if the successes of 1971 had somewhat papered over the sectarian differences that we were discussing earlier between, say, the communists and the socialists, by 1972, those sectarian differences are really spilling out into public view. So in mid-1972, you have the uh, Communist Party, um, member of the Communist Party is also a member of the Allende government, or Orlando Mias, pins an editorial in which he essentially calls for the party, for the coalition to sort of close ranks, to consolidate its gains, to reach out to the Christian Democrats, to make an alliance, and use that sort of consolidated alliance as the way to move forward on in the revolutionary path. The socialists, however, specifically the left wing of the Socialist Party, which was sort of identified with Carlos Altimirano at the time, takes the opposite approach and says that, no, the solution isn't to consolidate to advance. Uh, the solution is to advance and consolidate by advancing. In other words, we shouldn't try to make an alliance with the Christian Democrats, because in their view, the Christian Democrats were just bourgeois, right? Yeah. That we should essentially align ourselves with the popular classes, with the rural laborers that are leading charge of the agrarian reform that's picking up speed rapidly in the countryside at this time, right? Se land seizures are taking place much more rapidly now. Uh, we should also place our alliances with the popular working classes, which at that moment, at the moment that this polemic is playing out in the press of Chile, is the very same moment that you have the first cordon industrial emerge in Sirius Maipu. Uh, and it's into that sort of fractured moment that you have workers from a couple of plants that just happened to meet serendipitously on the steps of the labor ministry. One day in um, about May of 1972, they had both been on strike and had both been demanding their incorporation into what was referred to as the social property area, which this was Allende's vision for creating a socialist economy. And this was a plan that he had submitted to the Congress to restructure the Chilean economy into three parts. They would have a social property area that would be owned and operated by the state, You'd have a mixed property area that would be a sort of mixture 50-50 between the state and private industry. And you'd have a private property area, which would just be business as usual, private enterprise. Um, ultimately, that plan had been stalled out because of opposition from the Christian Democrats uh, that vetoed it and submitted their own alternative strategy, which then Allende vetoed, became a constitutional crisis that got remanded to the constitutional tribunal in Chile, which ultimately it languished there through the end of the Allende government through 1973 during the coup. It was never really resolved. Nevertheless, workers saw the ability to be in put into the social property area as the solution to what they perceived as a revolutionary socialism, right? To be in a socialized economy. And I mentioned earlier, Peter Wynn's work on the Yarrow textile mill. That's exactly what the workers at Yarrow did. They decided to do. Now that is in opposition to Allende and the popular unity's plan, which was to put these sort of grand monopolies in the social property area, not necessarily smaller industries such as, such as the Yarrow textile mill in particular. Um, there were other 
perhaps textile companies that have been slated for incorporation. But the problem is, is that the workers successfully petitioned um, and pressured Allende and won their incorporation. And that unleashed what Wynn would refer to as a revolution from below. And that's what allowed the workers who seized the labor ministry that day in 1972 to demand their incorporation into the social property area. Because there was a, a law on the books in Chile that stated that if there was an unresolved labor conflict at a factory, that the state could intervene and essentially make state control of that factory, which would be the first step to them being incorporated into the social property area. And so it's out of that happenstance meeting on the doors to the labor ministry when they seize it and take it over, shut it down, um, that then the workers of this industrial sector on the west of uh, Santiago begin meeting and they begin collaborating and they begin organizing themselves territorially. And I guess this is a good moment to apologize to our listeners that I never really gave a good definition as to what a cordon industrial was in practice. Essentially, the, the sort of wager of this organization was that you could organize yourself territorially rather than by trade or industry, right? Which would be the traditional way that a union would be structured. Um, you know, metal workers organize with metal workers, glass workers organize with glass workers, textile, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and never the twain shall meet in practice, right? It's all through bureaucratic structures, labor leaders, et cetera. As I mentioned, it wasn't until 1972 that the you know, rank and file is ever able to vote themselves for their own national leadership. And so the idea of these workers is that they're going to create their sort of new form of organization. And after you know, deciding to do it, they seize the territory of Cerrillos Maipú. They shut down traffic. And this road that they seize is one of the main roads into the city of Santiago from the west, which means that the government had to respond immediately. As one uh, worker, uh, not worker, one government official put it at the time, the workers were in the streets. We had to respond, right? You're, you're a, a government that claims to represent the working class. Uh, you're a government that it claims to be putting yourself on the road to socialism. And the workers have now cut off transportation into the city um, and are demanding sort of you to fulfill your promise. And so they had to respond. Um, ultimately, some of the workers that were striking at the time, specifically from the Perlac company, which was a canning company, uh, they did win the incorporation into the social property area. Um, and however, other workers um, from other factories in the area did not win their incorporation, which then produced uh, a march into the city of Santiago in late June. And it also produced a platform of struggle by what was referred to as the Workers' Command of Cerrillos Maipú. Uh, and that's really the first document we have um, that shows that there is this new structure that is demanding that the government fulfill its promise, live up to its basic program. Um, now, following that moment, however, there's sort of a period of demobilization that takes place in sort of mid-1972. And it's really not until October 1972 that you have the flourishing of this new form of organization of the Cordon Industrial across the city of Santiago. And the reason that it takes place in October of 1972 is because that's the moment that the opposition launches its first concerted effort to try and topple the Allende government. Uh, it's what's referred to as the bosses strike. And essentially what happens is there's a, a localized strike of truckers in the far south of Chile. And the sort of business elites of the country are successful in transforming what is a very localized strike 
in the far south into a global lockout on the part of business owners, right? So they'll shutter factories, they'll shutter distribution centers of foodstuffs, they'll completely shut down transportation networks in the city of Santiago and other cities across the country. Um, so you can understand why they would call it the boss's strike. Um, and this is the moment then that you have workers in these industrial zones that we start, began our conversation with using this model that emerged in the Southwest of, of Santiago as this new model to uh, seize their factories that they've been locked out of, to reorganize the production of their factories and to ensure distribution uh, you know, takes place of basic goods and services for local residents in their community. It's really what allows the Allende government to weather the storm of the October strike and uh, the October crisis as it will also be known. Um, Ultimately, you know, that will reach a truce in November. That includes a cabinet shakeup, also includes integrating the military into the cabinet, um, as well as Allende was able to deploy the military to sort of keep the peace in some senses. So there is a historiographical debate to be had between, you know, how much of it was the workers and the cordones saving the country and saving the government, and how much of it was the military remaining loyal to the government that allows them to sort of reach what's referred to as the truce of November. So I guess I, I want to back up for a second and talk about what does the internal organization of the Cordones actually look like? Like, are we talking about councils? Is this mass assemblies? Um, how, how, how does this actually work on a sort of like day-to-day -day basis? It's a great question. And this is actually the question that has sort of uh, dominated a lot of the scholarship on the Cordones. Um, Frank Goodishud, who is sort of the leading scholar of the Cordones, um, essentially used Marx's distinction of a class in itself and a class for itself to sort of unravel this question. So for, for Gurdjieff, the, the cordon in itself is the sort of territory, right, that we began our conversation with. And then the cordon for itself is essentially the workers' council that is the governing body of the cordon itself, which was uh, composed of already unionized workers, right? So it already is a, a tier of working class above, say, just your general worker that worked on the factory floor. So it's already a unionized worker and someone that occupies a power or a position of authority within the union, i.e. already a, or on the directorate or president, vice president, treasurer, or secretary. So that main council is are elected within the sort of general assembly of the cordon itself. Below, you have then different commissions, right? You have a sort of propaganda press commission. You have a cultural commission. You have a sports commission. You have a security commission, right? Because at this time, you had far-right shock troops that would uh, spark street battles and that would harass workers. They would also attack factories that had been seized. So they had um, security commission, frontline defense commission. You also had distribution commissions. Uh, and then you had other commissions that would essentially seek to coordinate all of this um, that exists. So you had a sort of coordinating board just below the sort of general council. And then that's what was the mediation point between that sort of governing council and your different commissions. How, how are the people who are like, who are on these commissions selected? Are they like, are they elected or is it just like whoever wants to be on this uh, thing? So it's a mix of both, right? So you, your sort of main council itself is elected via a general assembly. Um, in terms of the commissions, the smaller commissions, we sadly don't have great documentary evidence that, you know, lays out the process for that. So our best guess or our best understanding would be a mix of sort of volunteerism as well as some sort of um, 
within the commission itself, some form of election, excuse me, that would take place to sort of a, a point ahead of that commission that would then coordinate with the general counsel itself. Um, you know, really what this, you know, what this sort of cuts to the heart of um, is that the history of the Cordones is a very effervescent history. Um, it's really easy to see the Cordones in action, right, when they're doing things like seizing control of their territory and erecting barricades. But on that day-to-day level, it's a relatively opaque sort of structure. It's really hard for us as historians to get a view into that. You know, one reason the Goodishoot is able to, uh, to, you know, unpack as much as he has and uncover as much as he has is because he conducted a series of oral history interviews um, with many of the surviving workers. Um, and that's really one of the foundational source bases we have. Uh, he published this in a book in which he published the full transcript of his interviews. So we don't, it's not just like an interpretive essay, it's the full transcript. Um, and so that's that in combination with some of these uh, Cordones had local presses that we have existing um, documentary evidence from that uh, sort of would give, you know, your standard diagram of council, commission, 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 lines connecting them and things like that. Um, but one of the other few documents that we have, surviving documents we have, is what's referred to as the Manifesto of Cordon Vacuna Macena. And this is the document that my research really is at the heart of my research. Um, because while Vacuna Macena is recognized as sort of one of the most dynamic and strongest of the Cordones behind the original Inserios Maipu, we really don't have a lot, we don't know a lot about what was going on in there. In fact, my research was born out of a conversation the first time I was in Chile conducting research for my master's at Tufts um, with Godishud himself, who told me that like we really don't know a lot about what was going on day to day in Vacuna Makena. It'd be really great if we could somehow find a way to do that. Uh, and, you know, that kind of stuck with me. That really wasn't my concern at the time. My concern at the time was trying to understand how the Cordones had shifted from their emergence to the coup itself, because I, what I was seeing in a lot of the literature was that people were using sources from late 1973, once the Cordones are established and really showing up in press, right? They're showing up in the archive a lot more by 1973. Yeah. And they're using documents from 1973 to describe their sort of founding in 1972. and the historian in me was kind of like, hmm, you know, <laughs> yeah, things, that's, change. That's, things change, right? And, and ch- things change both over time and space. And so my original concern was, you know, what made the sort of changes from the Western side of the city to the Eastern side of the city. But then when I got to UVA and began my doctoral work, I really wanted to zero in on Fukuna Makena. And really I was, you know, that, that conversation with Frank was really ringing in my head and so, I, you know, I kind of, at UVA, I had to do another master's essay as part of the program there, despite having, you know, already done a, a master's <laughs> thesis when I was at Tufts. Um, oh, no. Double exactly. thesis curse. <laughs> exactly. The thesis curse. But, you know, it, what it did, what it allowed me to do was to, uh, you know, kind of play with the sources in ways that I may not have had the ability to do otherwise, right? Uh, and so I really sat with this manifesto for a long period of time and really did a close reading of this document, which, you know, a lot of times this document has shown up in previous studies. It's shown up as a, this is a document that emerges during the October crisis. It's the document we know we have from this one Cordon. Here it is, right? 
But what I uncovered was that the document itself, the document that is headed as the manifesto, is actually a reworked version of a document that had circulated previously during the October crisis hmm. that was produced by the revolutionary left uh, movement, the MIR, the far left uh, party in yeah, Chile. Aren't they, aren't, they, uh, aren't they like Guevarists? They are. They very much are. Uh, this is the, the very far left um, party that is calling for a more insurrectionary model. Um, it's also calling for a worker-peasant alliance, right? So it is this very much more traditional um, socialist revolutionary uh, in that sense compared to the sort of Allendeist um, vision of socialism that, that is uh, being handed down from above, right? And so during the October crisis, there's this document that circulates by the opposition that's running the crisis that is essentially the... Um, petition, the pliego in, in Spanish would be the word, but essentially the petition of, of Chile. Um, and the MIR takes issue with the fact that the bosses issued a petition in the name of Chile. Yep. And so they issue a counter document that is the people's uh, petition, the pliego del pueblo. Uh, and it's a very long document. It's a very, um, it reads as a essentially a manifesto for a, a new revolution to take place, right? Like how to transform the present crisis into a revolutionary breakthrough. And as you're saying, a Guevarist model. In the tail end of the October crisis, as Cordon Vacuna Macena is consolidating itself, right? It, it itself forms after a factory seizure at Alec Metal, um, which then unites these sort of two nodes that existed in the territory at the north end and the south end into one sort of communication and solidarity network that will then become known as the Cordon, that has its first general assembly in which it takes this document from the mirror and begins to rework it. And that's then what becomes the manifesto of Cordon Vacuna Macena. And so in my research and in my master's uh, essay at at the University of Virginia, what I did was I, you know, I really compared these two documents and looked for where the difference is. You know, what's showing up here that's not showing up in the Mears document. In other words, what glimpses can we get of the local culture of Akuna Makena itself? Um, and one of the key differences that I find is there's an entire section that begins the manifesto that was the crime of the bosses, the crimes of the bosses. And that exists in the Mears document as well. But the crimes that are articulated are bare slight differences, but the in the manifesto itself, the final crime that is articulated is that uh, the manifesto reads that it's a crime that the basic few elite in Chile continue to use the country's wealth to support their privileges without giving a dignified life to a majority of Chileans. And this doesn't appear anywhere in the Mears document. And it was something about this phrase of a dignified life that really just like cued my analytical senses that sort of raised the flags for me. And this is what then led me down the road that I'm on now, which is the road of looking at things like the church and the Poblador movement. Because the idea of dignity and the idea of a dignified life is a key discourse that's circulating in the church's pastoralism, right? Coming out, as we were speaking about earlier, the discourse of dignity is really uh, present in, in the church's outreach efforts, but it's also present in this Poblador movement for housing, 
the idea of a dignified house as the end goal of their struggle is something that is, you know, rings out in the documents that we have access to and in the oral histories that we have. And so that really, you know, made me think like, what is it then about Bakuna Makena that is allowing this to appear here? And, you know, what can we then learn using this as our, you know, starting point and going out where? And so that's when I decided to sort of take the story back all the way to 1957 and look at things like the church, look at things like the Poblador movement, but then also extend the story past the 1973 period, which is when the coup takes place, which is, you know, in the historiography seen as this, you know, hard line, this, this break in, in Chilean history, that there's a before September 11th, 1973, and there's an after September 11th, 1973. And very few studies cross that line, especially studies with regards to the labor movement. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. 
until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. So specifically, the, the dignity thing is, is, is really, really interesting to me, too, because I, so I, I did an interview, like, oh, God, like a month ago? Sort of have lost track of time, but I, I did an interview with with an with an Amazon organizer, and one of the things that, that was one of the things that was like one of the things that he brought up is that one of the things that like we are fighting for is dignity, and and uh, yeah, and that, that that's something specifically I've been thinking about more because I, like I, I think I, we talked about this a bit in in the interview itself, but like like dignity as a demand is a thing that you that you see all of the time in like in in in. You know, if 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 you are talking to a bunch of people, like on the street in the middle of a movement, you will hear people talk about dignity. I mean, I, th- I think if if I'm remembering this correctly, this is this is one of the this is one of the big thing. This is one of the big demands in like the 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 the, the modern uh, Chilean protest movements. Like that was one of their huge sort of focus. Yes. But it's, but it's also something like I I have never like at any I don't think I've ever seen like a communist party say the word dignity. Like, like it, 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 I think it happens. I don't know. Every once in a while, like maybe you see it if if you get a document that's that's not produced by the sort of ideological engines, but is produced by like just a bunch of workers in a factory. But yeah, yeah, that that that's fascinating to me because like yeah, because that it, I don't know. It, it's it's it seems like the struggle for dignity. Both it, yeah, like has this thing as like a very specific discourse from the church, but is also something that shows up in a lot of movements where you're not dealing with the kind of like ideological rigidity that you get from, I mean, you know, like the mirror, not the mirror, mirror is a like that, that, you know, like that, that's, that's a very like, like this is a party. It has a line. It has a very sort of like, right, it's a organization. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, it's fascinating to me that, that, yeah, that, that you, you can see these differences where even when, they have influence the thing that gets added is dignity yeah i mean there is you know and i think that perhaps what has um pushed studies of leftism socialism and labor movement away from the idea of dignity as an analytic object is there is tension here right dignity is a highly individualized concept yeah but the solution for a dignified life for all Chileans as per this document were collective structural changes. And so there's this tension between a collective solution and an individual gain, right? And so I think that that both um, explains why this hasn't necessarily been a focus of a lot of studies um, before, but it also, you know, it gets to the historiography itself, which was, you know, a large product of the history here. And so things like the Christian Democrats and things like the church were seen as the enemy of the popular unity coalition, given the way that the, you know, the coup takes place and and things like that. And so anything that maybe had a whiff of Christian democracy or Christianity or things like that was seen as, as antithetical or incompatible with the study of, of the left. It also gets to the tension that you were doing a really great job of, of sort of unpacking, which is this tension between the national leadership of these parties and the national union leadership, and then everyday workers on the ground, 
right? And, you know, that's, I think, really where the strength, and this was really the argument that I advanced in my master's thesis at UVA, is that one of the central contradictions of the Allende period is there were competing ideas of socialism. Yep. So from the top down and from Allende's view, socialism was the traditional Soviet Union-esque approach insofar as it was national economic planning, party hierarchies, things of that nature, right? Discipline at the base and upward and upward planning from the top down. But what I think the manifesto and the history of Vicuna Makina helps us understand is that for everyday individuals, that their idea of socialism didn't have anything to do with state economic planning. It didn't have anything to do with expertise and technocrats and things of that nature. It had to do with the idea that like, I need sheets for my bed. I need food for my child. I need the ability to, you know, have enough sleep to be able to get up and go to the factory the next day. Right. I need to be able to live a dignified life to be able to then, you know, carry out my work, my obligation as a worker in the historical movement of socialism. And so I think that this is really what um, this tension is then what allows for the sort of destabilization to take place um, as the opposition consolidates and and ultimately destabilizes the Allende government in 1973. Yeah. And I think this is a tension that like, I mean, I I think there's, there's different versions of it too that you see sort of across history like one of the ways that it manifests is this battle between the people who think socialism is about like is 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 national like state national incorporation the people who think socialism is about like direct control at the point of production by the people who are doing the work but but i think also yeah the 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 question of dignity is it's like it's this it's like dignity is this expression that's like maximally bad for um like if if you're like you know if, if you're like a you're 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 a material you're like a you know you're a historical materialist theoretician right it's it, it's it's the worst possible slogan because on the one hand it's like it's not materialist right like what is dignity there's no dignity has no class relation like what is that you know and it's 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 simultaneously like it's not materialist enough it's too reformist because like oh well you could give people dignity by just buying them off or like increasing wages or you could have a class compromise and that can give you dignity but then simultaneously it's this thing that's too radical because the problem with dignity also is it like yeah i don't know like there, there's there's no guarantee that you're going to get dignity if like your factory is controlled by the state like exactly and, 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 yeah and this is why like you see almost identical right, like the revolts. state is a boss just by yeah. a different name yeah and and yeah and it's like it's, it's why you see like the, the uprisings that happen um i mean really starting in 1957 in hungary but yeah you see, this is why like the, their uprising in czechoslovakia looks almost identical to like the uprising that happens in france it's because they're, they're both like they're, there's you, you know, you're, you're like you, the factory worker in a factory in Czechoslovakia and you, the factory worker in the factory in France are dealing with essentially the same thing. And so it's, it's this kind of like, I don't know, it's, it seems like it's, it's, it's this perfect sort of like cipher for all of these kind of political differences that, 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 that manifest this, this, this really old tension in what the workers movement is going to be. That's been being fought out since the 1830s and right. that yeah but i think that like if we as scholars and if we as intellectuals are really serious about when we say that we're going to study things from below then i think that we have to take the workers at their word yeah right and so like for example i presented a version of my 
of my master's thesis at a, I studied, was it a program in Bologna for a summer? Um, and so I was presenting this and to the sort of, you know, and the Italian leftists in the room um, really came, you know, came down on this question of, it sounds like what they're describing isn't socialism because they're much more interested in distribution and not interested in the point of production, which isn't socialist. And, you know, and all I could say, and all I could respond to this is like, that's what my subjects are using in the archive. And for me, it's far more productive to look for those slippages and look for those spaces in the archive when they are saying something that may be different than what we understand it to be. And that's a lot more productive avenue for analysis. And that to me is really how we fulfill this obligation to study things from below is we have to actually take them at their word and understand and try to understand what that actually meant for them. Right. And what that meant on an everyday basis. And, and I, I think there, there's a, there's a sort of like practical, like organizational, like, like, you know, if, 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 if you today want to do something like this, like, I, I think, I think there's, there's an imperative there too, which is that like, you actually do have to take seriously what people think and how that's different from the way that like you, the organizer are thinking about this, because those are things that don't overlap. And a lot of times that like, you know, and, and it's, it is not enough to just be like, well, these people want dignity. What they actually want is socialism or like what they actually want is the abolition of the class system. It's like, you have to like believe them when they say that they want something. And you know, and, and and when you don't do that, and when you get these sort of disjuncts between, like when you get these disjuncts between the, the the sort of the sort of party bureaucracy on the top and what like people in the streets who are seizing factories want, like yeah, I think like things start to sort of come apart. Exactly, and I you know I think that um, that if we don't you know depart from the perspective of staying true to what the archive gives us, then there's only a risk that we're you know, every historian, every scholar is going to inject their own interpretation onto a document, right? Yeah. Um, but the best way to sort of safeguard that is to, you know, stay true to what it's saying. And that, you know, the same goes for an activist and an organizer as for an intellectual, right? Like if you don't depart from the perspective of what your constituents or what your group is saying, you know, what they're really saying, the words that they're using to describe what they're demanding, then you're only ever going to just be trying to sort of fit the, you know, the, the square peg in the round hole. Yeah. And, and that can go really, really, really spectacularly wrong. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that is, you know, what then leads to, you know, in the case of the Cordones, that will then lead to tensions that will really break out into the open in 1973 and early 1973 when the, um, Orlando Mias, the same person that starts that polemic in 1972, by this point becomes finance minister um, in the Allende administration and presents a plan to sort of devolve some of the factories that had been seized during the October crisis, right, back to their original owners. Uh, and then this creates a huge problem, a uh, huge tension between the base, between workers in these factories that had sort of sacrificed yeah. everything and put their lives, literally put their lives on the line to seize the factories in the first place. Um, and so then you have another sort of moment of mobilization of the cordones across uh, the city of Santiago 
in early 1973 that's very much in opposition to the government now. Can I can um, I ask a, a a brief sort of framing question about this, which is that like, okay, so we we talked about this in 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 the interview we did with uh, some with modern Chilean activists, but like what 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 is the population of Santiago relative to like the population of the entirety of Chile at this point? Like how? Yeah, that is a great question that I don't actually have statistics like that I can rattle off no the top of my head. Um, but you know, I mean, there's there is uh, it is a great you know Santiago is the most populous region for sure, or so rather the most populous city, uh, and then sort of metropolitan region itself uh, is very densely populated. And is it is it now, still like a, like a, a pretty significant like population of the entire country, or is it less? It is a significant population of the whole country, for sure. Um, but there is tension in this. And then this is kind of the reason why I always try to steer somewhat away from these types of questions, because I'm sure this came up in your conversation with Chilean activists, is that you know, there is the phrase that Santiago is not Chile. Uh, and yeah. so there is, a ten- there is a tendency to rely on statistics of Santiago's population and the metropolitan region's population to say like, oh, this is where the majority of people live. So if it happened in Santiago, then that must be true for all of Chile. Yeah, um, And that just isn't the case, right? Chile is a huge country. It may be very narrow, but it's very long north to south. Uh, and it, you know, it is very distinct across the many regions of Chile. And so I very much am on the side of those that argue that Santiago is not Chile. Um, unfortunately, in the case of the Cordones, the majority of them do exist in Santiago. Uh, that said, in Concepcion, um, you know, another Chile further to the south of Santiago, there is one of the other cities that we know for sure actually did have Cordones that were moderately successful as well. In fact, there is, and now I'm completely forgetting her name, um, but there is a historian that has published a book about the Cordones in Concepcion. That's this is one of the few studies that uh sort of tries to look at Cordones beyond Santiago itself. Yeah, so is, a, you know and a, a very well taken point um on your on my part here that like you know a lot of our discussion today has been about Santiago and so is very much limited to Yeah, this is a this, this is a problem that you get a lot with like large urban movements. Like I mean so I I run into this with Tiananmen all the time where it's like you know okay so Tiananmen there's 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 the big thing in Tiananmen, but this happens in like cities all over China, and there's just nothing. There's like almost nothing that has ever sort of like been written or has gotten out of what happened everywhere else in the country. And so you get this you get this very myopic view of like what was happening that I think loses a lot of the sort of like I mean a, a lot of the diversity and a lot of the sort of the it. You, you you get a reality that is shaped by the specific experience of one place, which is not the specific experience of every other place. Right. Exactly. So like in the case of like Santiago and Cordonis, right? Like the labor working class that's making up this is factory labor, as we were saying at the sort of level of uh, consumer products. Right. But say if you had a Cordon in say Valparaiso, uh, the sort of coastal city, the port city um, where you have a much, a different labor force, right? Uh, with dock workers, things like that, you're going to have a much different uh, formation that's going to take place. And so as much as like my initial sort of attempt to understand the differences within the geography of Santiago, um, you know, I think was important. 
I always have to remind myself that like, it's still just this one city, yeah. um, which is very different from the experience of a vast majority of Chileans. I mean, it's definitely a moment in which, uh, you know, there is still a very large rural population for sure. And I guess like that, that brings me to, so like, yeah, in, in, in terms of sort of, okay, I guess there, there, there's two directions here. One, I guess, is about what is the, like, what is the rural population doing, like, while this is going on? And the second one, well, I guess, I guess we can start there. Yeah, I mean, as we sort of mentioned earlier, there is an agrarian reform that is happening, right? And you are having uh, a labor movement that is picking up rapid steam in the countryside, right? And you are having land seizures that is that are taking place and picking up steam. Um, and so that's a lot of what's going on in the countryside is uh, both uh, an increase in land seizures uh, and increasingly militant land seizures is that, but you're also having um, an increased unionization. Right. So the labor code in Chile had a different set of regulations for rural labor than it did for urban or factory labor. Right. And so one of the things that on uh, the Allende period that we see is a sort of flourishing of organized labor in the countryside. So you are having a lot of party militants going out into the countryside, as well as uh, labor leaders locally in the countryside that are organizing rural laborers. Um, so you are having mass um, union drives. Unfortunately, and I will be the first to admit that I am largely, you know, and this is again a consequence of like being an urban historian, yeah, I am yeah. largely ignorant of the, the inner dynamics of what is happening on in, in the countryside. Um, scholars like Florencia Mallon or Heidi Tinsman have both produced uh, outstanding works on this question um, in terms of the the relationship between land seizures and gender and indigeneity um, that is taking place in the countryside. So I guess, yeah. So, you know, okay. So we, we yeah, we, we can't get into too much detail on this, but I, I would, would it be broadly like accurate to say that it, it's not true that you're dealing with a situation where there's a huge sort of divide in the level of mobilization organization between the city and rural regions like that. This, this isn't like a sort of like, like you're not dealing with like a like a Vendée peasant situation where you have this enormous sort of reactionary base in the countryside. Oh right, yeah. No, you definitely don't. Yeah, it's definitely not that. Um, and you know there are attempts over the course of the Allende years. You know the Mir is one of the sort of fronts that this is playing out in. Um, but even the Cordones themselves, right? So like one of the initial um, rallies and sort of mobilizations of the Sorios Maipu Cordon is for um, the jailing and imprisonment of a series of rural militants and rural laborers that um, in the area of uh, Melipilla, um, there are some uh, activists and workers that are jailed. Uh, and those, uh, the Cordon actually marches into the city of Santiago, <laughs> into the downtown part of Santiago to demand their release. Um, and this is like a, a, a disparate geography here that we're talking about. And so um, it is, you know, this is an instance in which you're trying to see these sort of links be um, both be made and strengthened uh, between uh, factory labor in cities and rural labor in the countryside. And, and I, I guess that brings me to the, the second point, which is like, okay, so the, 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 there is a right in Chile and it is not happy um, Very I, much, yeah, yeah, and and I guess I, one of the things I guess I wanted to talk about was uh, so 
my my impression about a lot of what is happening in 1973 has to do with the fact that Chile's like truckers movement is really right wing, and that I, that has well okay so part of that part of that is the CIA part of that is just this like a, a like part of it specific. is the CIA's ability to keep striking truckers afloat yeah when they're not working yeah. and on strike yeah part and, of it also is a consequence from this moment in October right in which the national business elite and national economic elite in Chile transform that trucker strike into the boss's strike, right? So you do have this alliance being formed and strengthened at that moment as well, which will, as you're referring to, in 1973, there is another trucker strike that takes place that uh, is even more um, crippling in some senses than the initial one. Yeah. And then also, also as, as I will mention literally every time, even though I, actually, I don't know if I can say that on air, but the part that I can say on air is... <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, to their eternal ignominious non-glory, the AFL-CIO is also heavily involved in that, which is fun and good. And uh, yeah, AFL-CIO, please stop overthrowing governments and <laughs> helping neoliberalism. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very uh, interesting AFL-CIO history uh, in relation yeah. to Chile is actually very fascinating because during the dictatorship, they will actually be on the other side and actually helping labor get back on its feet um, and as a key point of resistance. So they're um, in the late 1970s organizing a boycott of Chilean products, which actually is a key point of pressure on the dictatorship to begin allowing for new, um, for a sort of new labor movement to begin emerging. Yeah, which that at some point, like, I don't, I don't think it can happen here. But I, I just did the podcast name. Hey, but yeah, like, I, I don't hey. think, it, I don't think it can be this time. But like, yeah, at at some point, I do want to take a deeper dive into sort of like what the AFL CIO is doing during this period because they are like they're all over. Like, yeah, there's a fascinating history. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, like you know, like one, one, my 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 last AFL CIO, what are you doing thing for this episode is I. Uh, so the, the, the AFL CIO has a policy where like they don't. Like they don't associate with like like state union federations, and they make one exception for it, and it's the state union federation of the military dictatorship in South Korea, which is like it's like ah oh, good job guys like well, well doing great here <laughs> this is this is going great yeah but but yeah I guess can we can we get into sort of the 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 the, the crises that like are the, the crises that like precipitate the end of Allende. Totally. Yeah. So by this point, you know, as I mentioned, by 1971, the opposition is largely um, disarticulated. Uh, you have the National Party, you have the sort of far right organization um, that would be translated as uh, Fatherland and Freedom, Patria y Libertad, or I translate it as Fatherland and Freedom because I think it has a better, it conjures it better. Others will translate it as Fatherland and Liberty. Um, but I, I'm a sucker for alliterative um, <laughs> forms. And so that's the the translation that I use. I also think it conjures more of the sort of fascistic elements, yeah. which this very yeah. much was a fascist organization. Yeah. Um, Bunch of neoliberals so they, in it too. Which, yes. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah. the, the, a lot of, you know, Los Chicago boys will um, yeah. have ties to uh, Patria Libertad. Um, and so there have, you know, rightist shock troops that are uh, fomenting uh, conflicts in the streets um, that are also setting off bombs that are crippling the power grid 
um, especially much later in 1973. Um, but following that moment in 1971, when the popular unity government eschews the alliance with the Christian Democrats, the Christian Dem that pushes the Christian Democrats to begin forming an alliance with the National Party. And what that happens then is that the left wing of the Christian Democrats splits from that party to form its own party of left Christians. <laughs> but then the consequence of that is that that means that the, the more rightist elements of the Christian Democrat party can consolidate their power yeah. and strengthen their ties with the national power. So that by, you know, late 1972 and very much by the March 1973 elections, which were sort of the key electoral moment that everyone was looking to, um, at this moment, um, you have a you have a solid alliance of the right. Um, now, the Allende coalition will win the March 1973 elections, um, and that is really the moment that scholars agree that the the switch is sort of flipped for the opposition, and that they realize that they can no longer defeat the Popular Unity Coalition at the ballot box, and that they now need to use extra constitutional means, right? And so they begin developing, sort of deploying the full force of those means. Um, and here is a point where the role of gender is very important, because a lot of what the right will do will be to mobilize the power of the, the power and symbol of women protesting um, as a way to delegitimate the Allende government and to delegitimate key figures uh, in the Allende administration. So earlier, there is a key uh, protest that happens, which is the March of Angry Pots. Um, and this is a, you know, a very traditional form of protest in Latin America, which uh, the Casa Lazo, right, the sort of banging of pots and pans in protest. Um, but the right organizes it to be largely carried out by women as a way to protest what is seen as a, um, you know, a lack of supply of basic uh, food necessities for um, families in Chile, which you know we now know is a result of black market speculation and hoarding on a lot of the part of the sort of distribution centers controlled by the right. Nevertheless, um, they essentially use this symbol of um, women heads of households uh, marching uh, in the streets in opposition to Allende. So that's one thing that happens. Later in 1973, they will sort of reuse this tactic and deploy women to protest in front of um, the houses of key military figures um, that are in the cabinet of Allende at this point. Uh, this will then force the resignation of some of these figures from the Allende cabinet. And then one of the key figures that is then replaced in the cabinet is none other than Augusto Pinochet, who will be welcomed into the cabinet and specifically will be welcomed into the cabinet because he is seen as a strict constitutionalist in the Chilean military uh, and is not seen as any sort of threat to what is going on. Meanwhile, in late June of 1973, there is an attempted coup that takes place in which you have a rogue regiment of the Chilean army um, deploying tanks in front of La Moneda, the presidential palace in Santiago. Uh, that is large, that is put down. Uh, it's also one of the last moments uh, that the cordones themselves will mobilize and that all the cordones in Santiago will seize their territories, uh, erect barricades, cut off transportation to prevent any sort of large scale coup from taking place, essentially to try and isolate that regiment just within front of La Moneda to allow 
for the wings of the armed forces that are still loyal to the president at this point to put that down. So that is put down. And then in between late June 1973 and September 11th, 1973, is what um, scholars, specifically Peter Wynn, refer to as a creeping coup begins to take place. And the creeping coup has you know, a multifaceted strategy. As I mentioned earlier, there's the bombing of electrical grids. So you have you know, increasing blackouts, instability, things of that nature, right? Fear-mongering uh, in very real, sense, palpable senses. Um, you also have a shakeup amongst uh, different members of different branches of the armed forces, uh, it, which those that are uh, loyal to the constitution, that are the constitutionalists are pushed out. And as a result, then you have the coup plotters that are um, you know, ready to essentially uh, overthrow the government, um, achieve positions of authority in which that they can give orders. And this is a key factor. This may seem like a small factor, but the Chilean military had historically been trained in the Prussian model of military training, right? So it was a very strict regimented hierarchical structure in which uh, historically had been very loyal within that hierarchy. So it was important that the coup plotters would achieve positions of higher authority to be able to actually effectuate a coup, especially after the attempted coup fails in June. So on the morning of September 11th, 1973, um, you have Hawker Hunter jets that begin bombing the presidential palace. Uh, and you have a deployment of um, military forces throughout the city to put down any sort of armed force or any sort of resistance, right? Uh, leading up to this moment, you had deployments of both the Chilean militarized police, the Carabineros, which are actually functionally militarized. They're part of the armed forces in Chile. It's not just militarized in the sense of tactics and weaponry to raid factories in the search of arms, right? Things of that nature. So you already had, um, this sort of daily occurrence taking place and a consequence of that, right, is that then these forces know the weak spots in these factories, they know the capabilities of these factories and things like that. Uh, Cordon Vicuna Macano will actually be the place that will witness some of the fiercest fighting of what would be referred to as the Battle of Santiago. You know, often when we talk about the Chilean coup, we talk about it strictly as September 11th, 1973. Um, the Battle of Santiago actually rages for a few days after September 11th. It's not just a quick, um, you know, in and out mission. There is, there is, there are forms of resistance that take place. Um, and Vicuna Macena is one of the, the places that this takes place. There are two Chilean historians, Mario Garces and Sebastian Leva, that published a, a masterful, wonderful book um, that is all about, it's um, called The Coup in La Legua. And La Legua was a historic población that was just to the west of the Facuna Macena factory. And the workers of factories in Facuna Macena, specifically the Sumar textile mill that we mentioned earlier, um, will essentially lead um, a march gathering other workers, saving those that they can, uh, and essentially holding their ground for as long as they can in the población of La Legua. Uh, in fact, I have some testimonies of workers and documents that I've uncovered. Um, one worker in uh, particular described the, the battle that raged there as, as being like hell on earth. Um, the, they had uh, helicopters firing from the sky. They had tanks surrounding them. Um, so they were um, under fire from both the, the, the land uh, and the air. And so ultimately then the, 
government is overthrown, right? Um, Allende, it's unclear to this day if Allende committed suicide, if he was killed. Uh, we just, we don't know. We do know that he refused to leave the presidential palace. We do know that he delivers one final address, a very famous address um, to, over the radio of Chile. Um, and then after that, we, we know that, um, that his corpse um, appears in a lot of the, the materials that, that the military will put out. Military takes control of communication networks. Uh, many of the communication networks and press networks were already controlled by the right. Um, so it was very easy for them to, to gain access to these methods um, to sort of spread their message. Um, and this is where things, you know, historically speaking, get uh, very interesting in the difference between our sort of um, conventional wisdom and what actually took place or takes place, right? The original structure of the military uh, junta that takes command was uh, designed as a tripartite structure that would rotate amongst different branches of the armed forces to prevent precisely what happens with the figure of Augusto Pinochet taking power himself uh, to prevent such a thing from happening, right? Uh, Ultimately, though, over the course of the 1970s, uh, you have Pinochet consolidating power. Uh, in fact, if you've ever seen the image of him that's sitting cross-armed with the sunglasses on, uh, it's, a, it's like one of the most recognizable photos of him from this time. That photo is actually the actual original version of the photo. You have the full junta behind him taking a picture. <laughs> but over time, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's not so much even he did it, but it's that uh, that photo just over time became so associated with him because it's such a jarring image of him sitting there. Um, that it, it sort of functionally recreated the sort of purging that he takes, that he'll carry out, essentially. Uh, you know, also what they will do immediately is that they will uh, close um, the Congress. They will dissolve the CUT, the National Labor Federation that we discussed earlier. Uh, and they will essentially uh, dissolve the um, conciliation councils that oversaw any sort of collective bargaining. They will freeze any sort of petitions, pliegos, from factory laborers, uh, and they will begin to purge uh, labor leaders across both the national spectrum of labor leadership, as well as, you know, through the course of 1974 and well into 1975, we'll be, again, purging factory-level leaderships. Um, they will institutionalize torture. Um, they will institutionalize forced disappearance. Uh, and all of these things um, constitute how they are essentially able to, to hold on to power uh, in those early days. There's a state of siege that is declared, uh, which means that all civil liberties um, have essentially been suspended. Uh, and all of this is in the name of national security. And that's really the key thing. Um, and so everything from the labor movement is shut down. Um, and then it will begin to reemerge. And that's really like where uh, I think my research and my dissertation, another key intervention that, we're, that I'm trying to make is that, you know, 1973 wasn't the end of the story. Like, yes, it was the end of the Cordones Industriales with a capital C and a capital I, but the idea of a territorial labor organization will reemerge in the late 1970s and in the 1980s when uh, protests against the dictatorship began to flourish.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER this is it your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. And this is something that, I mean, I guess this is sort of projecting into the future, but this is something that I, I was, I don't know, I've been thinking about and I don't quite know how to think about, which is the connection between, like, can we draw a line between the Cardonis, the sort of the, the pro-democracy movement that eventually, like, through Pinochet's incompetence and their skill, uh, like, brings down the dictatorship and the sort of the really vibrant, like... I mean, really, for the last like twenty years, like incredibly vibrant sort of like student protests, but I mean, just just sort of like like leftist street movements in Chile, because I mean, like I don't know, like I, I guess the, the the impression that I got when I was talking to like the Chilean organizers was that like organized labor wasn't 
playing much of a role in this. And so, yeah, I guess I was wondering, like, how 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 do we think about sort of this trajectory? And I know this is like fifty years, but no, yeah. I mean, I mean, my dissertation is trying to to, to sort of branch this full trajectory, and it's a beautiful, wonderful question. Um, and you're right, you know, the the activists that you spoke to, um, that is a very common, um, commonly held view, and it's a commonly held view for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that one of the what is seen as one of the main protagonists in the pro-democracy movements that take place in the 1980s are precisely those uh, figures we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, the pobladores. The pobladores are seen as the protagonists that protest the dictatorship, largely because they are, right? This is I'm not trying to say that they were not by any means. They clearly were. Um, we have great studies of this. Kathy Schneider's um, book, Shantytown Protest in Pinochet's Chile, is just a, a wonderful study of this. Um, they were protagonists, and the, the geographic space, the site of the poblaciones, is where a lot of the protests are going down. Um, but labor did play a part, and labor did play a key part and this is part of my argument, is that not only does labor play a part, labor plays a key part in initiating the protests that begin in the early 1980s. Now, by the late 1980s, the there people are certainly right that labor is no longer anything close to the power it was pre-1973 or even earlier in that decade by any means. But in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, specifically in the space of Akuna Makena and workers that are coming out of that tradition play incredibly instrumental and key roles. So for example, there's a gentleman, Manuel Bustos. He's a member of the Christian Democratic Party. He's a worker at the Sumar textile mill in the cotton plant specifically. He will um, at the time become president of Sumar's cottons union. He will then go on to, along with other labor leaders found the National Union Coordinator, or the CNS. He will become president of that, and he will become one of the key figures, along with other labor leaders, that will uh, initiate and lead to the pro-democracy protests that begin in the early 1980s. Uh, so much so that he is um, at one point relegated, which this is a way, one of the tactics the military used um, would be to relegate uh, perceived agitators or provocateurs uh, to different parts of the country, right, out of, say, Santiago in the case of Bustos. So at one point, he is relegated to the far north of the country. He's also exiled at a certain point. He's also jailed at a certain point. Um, so even if we, you know, even if we don't look at the archival record in terms of what Bustos is saying, what Bustos is doing, if we just look at what the military is doing to Bustos and to his colleagues in the CNS, then we that should tell us that they perceive them as a legitimate threat and that they perceive labor as a legitimate threat. And this really, you know, explains why you have a shift in um the dictatorship's policies with regard to labor between the early 1970s, the late 1970s and 80s. So here I'm drawing a lot on the work of Rodrigo Araya, uh, who is a scholar here in Chile, who has done a great deal in showing that early in the dictatorship, you had a series of labor leaders who were opposed to Allende, who were still labor, right, still pro-labor, but 
anti-leftist and anti-Allende who take control of some of the key labor federations, namely the Copper Federation, and begin to sort of designate themselves as the key uh, figures of labor. Um, and there's an attempt then by the dictatorship to essentially make a corporatist model of labor and integrate them and control them from the top down. Um, ultimately, that backfires because in doing so, they the military refuses to recognize some of these individuals and instill their own um, sort of puppets, if you will, their own mm. labor leaders, which then causes resentment, which then pushes that group to an oppositional stance, um, which then allows for more connective tissue, more connections to be made between that group, which would be loosely referred to as the group of 10, uh, and individuals such as Bustos and others that are forming this national union coordinator. Those two groups will ultimately, in the early 1980s, um, form a new group, which is the National Workers' Command. Um, and this actually group is formed at a point in which Bustos himself has been exiled out of the country. Um, so, you know, there's a debate to be had whether or not the formation of the command was an attempt to consolidate control away from the union coordinator in Bustos, which was much more open to working with members of the left and the communists at the time compared to, say, the group of 10 who, you know, were much more opposed to working with leftists. Um, so that's really, you know, one of the big differences um, between labor in a pre-1973 period and a post-1973 period is there's still a, a struggle for labor rights, protection of workers, and unionism, right to strike, right to collectively bargain. But what's missing in that post-1973 period, or rather what has been murdered, disappeared, tortured, executed by the dictatorship, is uh, a theory of power for unions, right? The sort of leftist influence, uh, you know, you could call it Marxism, Leninism, you can call it sort of a social democracy, but some theory of power that animated unionism and animated the labor movement in the pre-1973 period, that is 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 essentially being purged uh, over that course of the 1970s into the 1980s. Um, but in addition to these sort of national level developments, which, you know, for me, Bustos is the straight line that connects the territory of Vukuna Makena to this national level. Within Vukuna Makena itself, you have two groups that begin to emerge in the late 1970s, 1980s. Uh, the first would be the uh, Solidarity Group. Uh, and then the second would be uh, Union Unity. And both of these new organizations emerge in Vukuna Makena and emerge specifically as territorial organizations of labor. So they are in opposition to what Bustos and others are trying to do, which is reform the sort of national labor hierarchy, hierarchy, bureaucratic, or, you know, the bureaucratic, excuse me, approach to labor. They're specifically opposed to that and are arguing that labor should be organized territorially because it allows a greater flexibility for the workers to respond to the new realities of a dictatorship. And specifically to the new realities of the new constitution that the dictatorship puts in place in 1980, as well as the new labor plan that they put in place through a series of laws in the late 1970s and early 1980s that severely curtail labor's ability to both organize. Uh, so for example, the closed shop is um, essentially done away with. Uh, 
they also um, will limit the ability to strike. You could you can strike. However, after 30 days, um, the the management can begin hiring scab laborers essentially to break the strike. And if a strike lasted past 60 days, uh, that the management was allowed to fire all the striking workers because after 60 days they were considered to have walked off the job and were no longer considered employees. Uh, also, one of the key uh, you know innovations that uh, the sort of technocratic advisors to the dictatorship as um, implements in the new labor code is the individual labor contract, right? Which means that workers now are contracted individually, which also then prevents any sort of national level union from bargaining on behalf of a sector-wide or an industry-wide contract that is no longer allowed. And so it's for all of those reasons that you have these two groups begin to emerge and saying, no, we need to focus our efforts on the base and we need to focus them territorially. And for me, that is a straight line between the legacy of the Cordones and what we're seeing in the 1980s. And then the other sort of discursive straight line, like if that's the material connection, the discursive straight line is that these organizations are using the discourse of dignity and a dignified life in the extant source material that we have. That makes sense. And I, th- I think that also, but that also, I guess, partly explains why, like, why organized labor, like, ceases after that point because I, I guess it is just sort of like the it, it's the sort of the, the the neoliberal shifts in what's happening in terms of the actual law and then actually i don't know i guess i guess i should ask about this like is there also a sort of like like do you also get a sort of like like an, an, another sort of geographic shift in in how factories are distributed like through the years Totally. You have essentially a deindustrialization, a policy of deindustrialization, yeah. and you have a total reversion to what we can think of as a 19th century economic export economy um, for Chile, right? So you have uh, much more focus and investment into commodity exports, be it um, the fishing sector, the agricultural sector, things like that, right? So, like, for example, if you go into your grocery store uh, and look at some of the fruits, specifically, say, grapes. More often than not, they're going to come from Chile, uh, especially in off seasons, right? The benefit of Chile being in the Southern Hemisphere for, say, consumers in the United States is that then you have access to things that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. Uh, and so the dictatorship will prioritize this um, over the idea of industry. So you have a total reversion to um, importing uh, goods and services that would have been produced nationally or locally. Um, and so what this means then for a lot of the labor that happens in these zones, right, is you have mass layoffs. Uh, that's another innovation um, that the dictatorship and the Chicago boys will introduce is the ability for management to fire um, at a mass level and have that be legal. Um, and so you have high, you have skyrocketing unemployment amongst um, factory level labor uh, such that, like, yes, by the 1980s, you have a refounding of a national labor confederation. Also, the acronym being the CUT. Uh, the difference, however, is that it's under such a much different labor framework. It's also in a situation in which industrial labor is just not the main sector of labor. Uh, and 
in its founding statutes, if the coot pre-1973 was identified as the only national labor confederation, the statutes post-1973 um, and in the late 80s when it's reformed allows for there to be other national confederations. Um, and actually, this is one of the great debates that takes place between those organizations at the base in Vukunamakena and these national level organizations is whether or not there should be one labor confederation or whether or not there should be many different labor confederations organized all on ideological lines, which is essentially a code word for anti-communism, right? It was the, the idea of the ideological labor central was a way to exclude the left from gaining control in organized labor like it had in the pre-1973 period. And so by the dawn of 1990s, when democracy, or rather when democratic elections returned to Chile, you have labor in a much different position. Uh, and that's why you have this very weakening um, series uh, or, or period under the Concertacion government, the ruling coalition, the governing coalition that takes power in 1990 with Patricio Eowyn winning the presidency, um, it's just much different. Uh, and it's it's straightjacketed legally because the 1980 constitution is still in place, right? It's still in place to this day. Uh, and that's actually then, it's the period of the Concertacion that is the period where you really have the most weakening of um, labor. It's also the period we have the most privatizations that are taking place of former state-owned companies. It's we could say that it's the period that is the most neoliberal period uh, in Chile relative to the civilian, the period of civilian military dictatorship. Yeah, and I guess that's sort of like that that that's the thing that I guess gets you to well, the last sort of 20 years of like of student-led protests and of sort of ecological protests. I mean, I guess you, like the Mapuche have always been like fighting, but the, the, the way that... Oh, from, from Spanish colonial... Yeah, I mean, for like court, hundreds right? of the years. It's the only in, yeah. indigenous group that was never conquered by the Spanish. Yeah, um, but, and I guess, but I guess like like the, 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 the axis on which the left is sort of like built on like through that period just shifts and that's i guess where you get the modern like the the sort of modern like configuration of the left that's been in the streets in the last sort of like you do and this is a this is the reason why i'm i sort of draw a, a hard line ending my study in 2010 for two reasons one is that it's the uh 2010 is the first is the election of uh pinetta to the presidency uh sebastian pinetta as his first term in 2010. And so it's the first moment that someone from the Concertacion is not elected as the president. They had governed sent from 1990 to 2010. So um, that's really the, what Peter Wynn and other scholars have referred to as the Pinochet period, which extends all the way from 1973 to that moment is inclusive of the Concertacion government because of their um, adherence to the neoliberal economic model. Um, that's when that period ends in 2010. Also a year later in 2011 is when the student protests. Yeah. Around. And that's when you have a, a new cycle in uh, Chilean social movements led by the students, right? Prior, you know, post the, the return of democracy, again, the return of democratic elections in 1990, I think this is a very important distinction between a return to democracy and a return of democratic elections, which uh, seems to be a confusion between, not a confusion, but a, a slippage between 
the form of democracy, i.e. free and fair elections, and the content of democracy. Um, and so a lot of people will refer to 1990 as the return to, of democracy. But I think that the past 30 years of, of governance in Chile shows us, especially the past two years of um, uprising and resistance against that model, show us that democracy has yet to, to fully return. Um, but in that period, uh, you know, in the 1990s on, street protests were not seen as an affected, effective measure. Um, as, a, as, a, as the way to protest, right? They obviously were effective in the period of dictatorship. Um, but after that, there no, there, there's a not, not necessarily a discrediting of sorts, right? But there's not the emphasis on them that there was during the dictatorship and certainly not that there was in the pre-1973 period. It's not until the students take to the streets in 2011 that you have this revival of the street protest as a as a viable form um, of resistance and protest in Chile, and you know, and it's no surprise then that in October 2019, when the the estallido, the uprising, takes place, that it's students that yep. were once again the vanguard of this, um, and you know, when they're um, jumping turnstiles in the subways to in protest of a proposed transportation hike. Um, I was, I was actually lucky enough to be living here in early 2020, pre-pandemic. Um, and a lot of people that I spoke to um, at protests and things like that were very quick to tell me that it was not 30 pesos. It's 30 years yeah. that they were protesting. Yeah. And, and you know, I, and I guess that also, like, the left-wing forces that took over the state, like, the, it's, it's, it's the reason why a lot of that winds up sort of being about the Constitution. Because yeah, you know, you still have this. You still have Pinochet's like. I no, exactly. The, the nineteen eighty constitution, yeah. constitution, constitution remains intact. Yeah, yeah, and oh God, I, I, I used to know the name of this. I said in one of the other episodes, I think, I think like the the guy who wrote it like was like an enormous Hayek fanboy and called it like the Constitution of Liberty or something. And it yeah, it was it was a hand it was a hand selected team um, yeah. of very few individuals that was handpicked by the dictatorship to write the constitution. Um, you know, there was the, there was a veneer of uh, democratic support insofar as the dictatorship in 1980 holds a referendum on whether or not to vote up, down, yes or no for the new constitution. Right. Um, the yes vote won. However, there is uh, many uh, sources at the time, as well as scholars that have claimed that that uh, victory was not a valid <laughs> victory um, yeah. by any means. Um, but, you know, it, right now uh, in the post 2019 period, um, a sort of effect of the uprising that took place is there is a constitutional convention that's taking place as we speak uh, here in Santiago um, that's headquartered in the former National Congress. Uh, during the dictatorship, the uh, Congress has moved to the port city of Valparaiso, away from Santiago. Uh, but in the old National Congress building is where the new uh, Constitutional Convention is taking place. And actually, two nights ago, there was a marathon voting session uh, in which uh, a series of social rights were adopted into the into the text of the new Constitution. And these social rights included, among other things, the right to unionization, the right to strike the right to collectively bargain, 
the right for workers via unions to have a say in the uh, direction and business of an enterprise, of a business itself, to participate in management, essentially. Uh, but it also included things such as a right to healthcare, a publicly funded healthcare system, the right to social security, publicly funded, and it included a right to housing, which specifically included the phrase of a right to a dignified and <laughs> adequate home, yep. as well as a right to the city that included the phrase uh, that the right to the city is for the development of a dignified life. Uh, and so really that is kind of the epilogue um, to, to the story that we've been talking about this whole time. Now, you know, we don't know if the constitution itself will be adopted. Um, there's going to be an exit vote on September 4th of this year in which uh, Chileans under a, a, it's a mandatory vote will vote up or down on whether or not to adopt the new constitution. So we can't say for certain if these rights will actually become rights of citizenship in Chile. Um, but as of now, those rights are included in the text that will be voted on in September. Yeah. And I think, I, th I think that's a pretty good place to end it unless you have anything else that you want to. No, I think that that's a really, you know, there's a really yeah. nice symmetry there. Um, and, you know, I stayed up far too late the other night watching that vote. Uh, I think it went to like two in the morning, um, but it was a, you know, it was an exciting thing to see. Um, and, you know, it is an exciting moment to, to be here in Chile, um, especially after having to be away for two years during, during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, thank, thank you so much for, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, you know, and I hope that, um, my ramblings are, are sensible to your <laughs> listeners, um, and, um, that they're able to take something from it because, uh, I do think there's an importance in this history, especially, you know, this year is the 50 year anniversary of the Cordonas yeah. emergence. And so uh, it's a great time to, to sort of spread knowledge of this, this moment in Chilean history. Yeah. And I guess, uh, do, do you have anything like that you want to plug? Uh, no, I don't have anything specifically. Uh, um, yeah, no, still cranking away in the archives and working on <laughs> my dissertation. So sadly, I don't have a, a book to plug or anything like that. But, you know, give me a couple years uh, and yeah. hopefully I'll have a, a book. <laughs> yeah, I'll have you back horizon. on when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, in the meantime, uh, you too can form a large section of industrial democracy in your workplace that involves taking it over. Um, yeah, go go do that. Uh, <laughs> this this has been Naked Happen Here. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod. Actually, by the time this is dropping, we will be a few days away from uh, Margaret Kildroy's new series, Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, uh, which is rad. You're going to hear a lot of cool people doing cool things. It is dropping on May Day on May 1st. And uh, after that, we have we, we have another show dropping, which is which is which is uh, Ghost Church about ghost churchy things. It's it's gonna be good. It's it's Jamie Loftus. It's Jamie Loftus doing Jamie Loftus things about a bunch of a bunch of the sort of like American ghost churches and people who talk to ghosts. So yeah, go listen to that. Have fun. <laughs> Bye everyone. It could happen here as a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening.
Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal History. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.